G'day mate, 40 here. So the HBO TV show White Lotus has finished up its second season and it's funny how critics are just universally condemning it for not sufficiently punishing those male characters displaying toxic masculinity. And uh, Michelle Goldberg, New York Times columnist who profiled me twice, once for Salon Magazine back in 1998 and then for Talk Magazine in 1999. Uh, she, she writes a column this week decrying that uh, maybe one day we'll get TV shows that deal with politics instead of transcending politics. Like, God forbid that uh, TV show doesn't make some sort of uh, didactic left-wing thought. God forbid that we get to transcend politics. So, on a similar kind of silly plane, got New York Times here, when freedom meant the freedom to oppress others. So, I don't really think you can have freedom without the freedom to oppress others. Because oppression... This means, you know, so many different things that, that uh, kind of lacks objective meaning. So certainly you should, you know, have laws of the land like they do in Australia. I mean, such a, such a well-run city. I was kind of amazed how well-run Sydney is. Like there's no trash around, no graffiti, virtually no homeless, almost no begging on the streets. Almost no crime. So you can have a, a rule of law that uh, perhaps limits people's ability to oppress others, but uh, oppression contains such huge subjective elements that, uh, yeah, freedom, freedom for one party is going to mean some negative results for another team. So. Whose side, whose side do you ultimately want to be on? I want to make my way here to the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Here we go, mate. So there's a big New York Times book review article. When freedom meant the freedom to oppress others, Jefferson Cowie's powerful and sobering history of freedom's dominion traces the close association between the rhetoric of liberty in Alabama County and the politics of white supremacy. I don't think liberty was just rhetoric here. All right? So freedom of association is going to mean oppression for some other people. Right? You get to be free to rent to whom you want and sell to whom you want and hire who you want. Right, that's going to feel oppressive to the people you don't want to bring into your circle. So freedom is a very big American value. We've got uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the Civil War, says Americans are fanatics in freedom. They hate tolls, taxes, turnpikes, banks, hierarchies, governors, and laws. <laughs> so, of course, different people interpret freedom differently. Pilgrims, the Puritans, the Quakers, the Scots-Irish, the Cavaliers, like all had different understandings of freedom, but freedom still remains you know, the dominant American value. But yeah, it comes at a price to others. And you see it in Australia, this is a society dedicated to fairness, which is uh, very different from a society dedicated to freedom. So you have more restrictions on your freedom in Australia, but that comes with a greater fairness. So what's more important to you, fairness or freedom? Right, I like community, but community comes at a, a price. It's a restriction in freedom. 
I like my freedom, but I'm willing to give up some freedom to have the, the joy of the joy of community. Okay, where am I here? Nope, not going there. G'day, May 40 here. About to step onto the uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge. And uh, I'm going to have a good laugh at myself, mate, because I'm always just so enthusiastic about something or another. And uh, the topics of my enthusiasm have frequently changed. And I say, like, 40, what the hell, man? You're always enthused about something. But uh, where's the consistency, mate? Are you, are you a stayer? Are you just flapping around in the breeze? And the breeze of the enthusiasm of your, your constantly changing opinions and perspectives. What the hell? I made a mistake. No pedestrian access. I was wrong, but you know what, some, uh, some people really like it, right? Like a couple of introverted Australian blokes get together and it's like, how you going? Oh, good mate, how about you? Yeah, good. And that's the end of it. But uh, at least with my serial enthusiasms, there are always like 20 different topics that I want to talk about. So. I can be a little bit bossy. Right? Oh, let's go here, let's go there. But uh, sometimes that's a, a blessed antidote to the, the more passive, introverted bloke. So our strengths and weaknesses right, depend on the situation. Sometimes our weaknesses become strengths and our strengths become weaknesses, depending on the situation. So I often go into a lot of my social interactions knowing that a lot of people are highly you know, introverted and it's just trying to bring joy and bring a laugh and uh, then sometimes I have a step it's like oh that really offended me mate <laughs> so now I misjudge so generally speaking people who use humor uh, are pretty good at reading social cues right because you'll get so much blowback if you're misjudging the situation. So I was just uh, reading a Vox article on, on humor. And so there's like self-denigrating humor, there's you know affirming humor, there's releasing the tension humor. And uh, generally speaking, you got a sense of humor that'll make you more of a pleasure to be around. It'll lift other people up. But uh, also notice that totally wearing on people. So if I'm around people on a constant basis, then I need to dial it back a bit. On the other hand, when I'm just with people on an intermittent or occasional basis, then, uh, then it's more of a time to just let it rip and people enjoy the change of pace. G'day mate, 40 here. Walking over Sydney Harbour Bridge. So, the only reason people uh, don't say what they mean, generally speaking, in politics is because the price is made too high to say what you mean. So, you get a lot of euphemisms. Right? But the only reason you get euphemisms like states' rights and abortion is because people. I learned that they can't stand up for what they really, really believe in. So then people have to go the euphemism route. So, Southerners, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, United States, they, they stood up for what they, they really believed. But then by about 1964-65, they became increasingly untenable. And so, the the segregationist movement realized it could no longer win 
on a platform of explicit segregation. So it changed to other things, to euphemisms like states' rights and to things like abortion. And abortion became a proxy for racial attitudes, attitudes towards sexuality, family. And so when George Wallace ran for office, right, he talked about segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Right, that was a key part to his understanding of freedom, also a key part to what many of his voters also believe was freedom. Then by fiat from the US Supreme Court and enforced by the federal government, and that option was struck down. It no longer had the option of standing for what you really believe in. So when you make what people want illegal, they're going to have to start to lie, they're going to have to try to seek the protections accorded to religion. So when you listen to Richard Spencer's streams, he still has many of the same nationalist impulses that drove him six, five, four, three years ago. But now he realizes they can't be achieved explicitly, so he's turned to the realm of religion. He's turned to the realm of Apollonianism. And uh, you see with, like, Nick Fuentes, right, he can't can't put what he wants first and foremost. He has to clothe it in Christ as King. So in Nick's life and in the rhetoric he uses and in the knowledge he displays, it's very little religious impulse. But uh, the idea that Christ is king is a much more socially acceptable expression of his political views. So George Wallace says, I've been taught that freedom meant freedom from any threat or fear of government. And he said the black citizens of Alabama, they were free too. They were free to live and to learn and to work and to teach within their separate racial station. Well, that is another form of freedom. So people on the liberal left have this idea that we can just endlessly expand liberty and that the expansion of civil rights doesn't come at the cost to anyone else, right? The only cost is that people are forced to overcome their ingrained folkways, traditions, bigot, bigotry, prejudice, and ignorance. So the left thinks that we can just endlessly expand education and freedom, help people overcome their ignorance, and uh, we'll live in an increasingly better world. So this is a tremendous new book, Freedom's Dominion. So it's by Jefferson Crowey historian at Vanderbilt University and it talks about the role of freedom in George Washington Wallace's birthplace of Barber County in Alabama's southeast corner. So, you know, freedom often meant, you know, free to brutalize, right? So when the white settlers moved in, they, you know, fought battles with the Indians. So sometimes diversity means people, you know, get together and live in peace and it's a mutual benefit to people like in Sydney. People seem to be getting along really well. But other times, diversity and proximity mean bloody conflict. And so when the pilgrims moved into the United States, all right, the, the Indians didn't, didn't like that. And so there were pitched battles. And in the end, one side had to win and one side had to lose. And it was only decided when you had a very clear winner. And I think that's the way it will be in the Middle East as well. Only when there's a very clear winner and one side is dominant will there be peace. So when there's conflict, a clash of vital interests with diversity and proximity, then until one side clearly wins, conflict will continue.
how the left talks about civil rights as though it's just you know endlessly expanding freedom, and that there's you know, no downside to anyone but uh, the reduction of their ignorance. And that's just not how the world works. Right? Loss of freedom of association is a substantial loss of freedom. So George Wallace strode onto the political stage inveighing against ungodly government and the persecution of whites. So every group has reasons to feel oppressed. Even white people. Even white southerners. So George Wallace knew that his freedom brand of politics had considerable popular appeal. That uh, many white Americans felt understrained looking for someone to speak for them. And George Wallace stepped up. He, he became the face of the backlash against the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, against all the court rulings and federal government programs that you know, aim to restore more and more liberty and rights to black American life. But this extension of, of liberty and civil rights to black American life you know, was experienced as a loss of rights by many white southerners. And so his common enemies were the elites, the press, and the federal government. That being a southerner is no longer geographic, he declared in 1964. It's a philosophy and an attitude. And that's still true today. So we still hear echoes of George Wallace in theories about the deep state, in the behavior and rhetoric of Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Right. Ron DeSantis wants to ban certain liberties, such as the liberty of uh, teachers to talk about the sexual orientation of children. So one man's liberty frequently comes at the price of another man's comfort and liberty. So you know, how did the Republican Party become known for its fixation on the free market, on states' rights, on rolling back federal government overreach? in large part because they couldn't explicitly run on you know, overturning what became settled law. So in the same New York Times today, there's a, a good article on why are we celebrating, what the heck guys, why are we celebrating all these Nazis? Right, like Werner von Braun, yeah, how, how dare we do that? Oh, Mike Leach, the great football coach, died. And uh, Mike Leach loved to carry on conversations. But when he'd talk on the phone with some stranger for an hour, you know, that often came at the price to other people, right? such as his assistants who were waiting to have a meeting with, with Mike Leach, and he'd keep them on hold so he could talk on the phone to a stranger for an hour. So... Many things in life are not just good and evil. It's good for one group, bad for another group. So here's a New York Times op-ed. Why do Stanford, Harvard, and NASA still honor a Nazi past? Well, they're not honoring the Nazis so much. They're honoring not what the Nazis did, but what these ex-Nazi scientists did for America. So there are no permanent friends and enemies, right? They're just conflicting interests. So from NASA to Stanford to the United States Army, American institutions continue to acknowledge, sometimes even celebrate, high-profile former Nazis. So they shouldn't even acknowledge them. They should just be written out of history and celebrate. So we shouldn't celebrate the good that they've done for America. Uh, you can take you know, some disturbing incident from everyone's life and use that to define them. There are no permanent friends or enemies in life. Right? The Nazis were our enemies until the Nazis surrendered. Then they frequently became our allies in the battle against communism. So it was Nazis who helped get the United States to the moon. Right? How did the United States go from fighting the evil of Nazism to lording ex-Nazis? The United States pursued its interests. Right? When its interests or at odds with Nazism because Hitler had declared war on the United States, they fought 
Germany, but they weren't fighting the evils of Nazism. They were engaged in a geopolitical struggle. The United States has no interest in allowing other regional hegemons. The United States had no interest in allowing Germany to dominate Europe or Japan to dominate Northeast Asia. So with the defeat of Germany, Joseph Stalin, Soviet Union became America's biggest enemy and so the Nazis and the Germans who were our biggest enemy became our friends. We needed technology to compete with the Soviet Union. We needed West Germany to stand up as a bulwark against communism. So these ex-Nazis offered important expertise and so they were brought into America like former SS officer Werner von Braun. He was meeting with U.S. presidents, received a lot of honors, because he played a very important role for the U.S. So the U.S. wasn't primarily at war with various ideologies. That was just the rhetoric that the U.S. used. The U.S. uses very internationalist, humanist, liberal, democratic rhetoric to disguise a frequently a brutal pursuit of their own self-interest. So this author is confusing American rhetoric with American realities. So the author condemns Werner von Braun for working for Hitler on his deadly V-2 ballistic missiles. Well, Werner von Braun was working for his country in a war. And that there was slave labor used to produce their missiles wasn't at the top of his concerns. I think that's understandable. Like, how would you have behaved if you're in his situation? So Washington launched Operation Paperclip, recruiting all these former Nazi scientists to work in America, and they were a tremendous benefit to America. Right? If someone's got necessary skills, needed skills, important skills, yeah, you're strongly incentivized to you know, overlook those things you don't like about them. You don't get to be so pristine. So the Cambridge Dictionary has updated its definition of, of woman to include trans women. And how did we get to this? And I think it began when we started substituting the word gender for sex. So gender is something that is socially constructed. Sex is something that's biological. So if once we move from using gender instead of sex, as in the male sex and the female sex, but now turned into the male gender, the female gender, then it is inevitable that if male and female are socially constructed, that that you know, social construction can change. And so now you know, any man can decide to become a woman, just socially constructed. So. The traditional view on life accords much greater weight to genetics, to biology. So, a major theme of the right, including the distant right, over the past few weeks is that Sam Bankman-Fried has just been getting away with it because he donated so much money to the Democrats. And uh, it's not a theme that I've amplified. And it's not something that I've considered you know, important that uh, I need to discuss. It's not something that kept me up at night. It's not something that I, I was angry about. I just ignored it. It didn't seem like a strong case. And now Sam Bankman-Fried has indeed been arrested and, and charged with fraud. So prosecutors often take a lot more time to build a case than ordinary people think is justified. But uh, you can't just intuit the law. Right, just because it seems like someone's committed fraud doesn't mean that prosecutors have sufficient evidence and have assembled a strong enough case to arrest someone. So this you know, right-wing paranoia that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was getting away with it because right, he was a major donor to the Democrats. He was being treated more leniently by Joe Biden's Justice Department that he'd been given a, a free pass to commit massive amounts of fraud. All right, well, the Justice Department is just going after Donald Trump, but it's not going after Democrats. Well, Sam Bankman-Fried's now been arrested and indicted. I think that undercuts that, uh, that paranoia and that conspiratorial mindset. So yeah, Sam Bankman-Fried 
donated nearly $40 million to Democrats. But uh, there's, uh, there's no evidence that he was going to get away with it. So Tucker Carlson was claiming, Biden's Justice Department seems not very interested in a man called Sam Bankman-Fried. Well, why is that? Maybe it's because Sam Bankman-Fried was the Democratic Party's second biggest donor this cycle. Right? That's just nonsense and paranoia. Elon Musk said Sam Bankman-Fried was a major Democratic donor, so no investigation. Jesse Waters was echoing the same thing. Janine Pirro on Fox News. Do we have a two-tiered system of justice? Tucker Carlson said last week, Sam Bankman-Fried was the second big, biggest donor of the Democratic Party. We're hearing the Justice Department is looking into him. He's going to get away with it, said Tucker. Well, he's been arrested. There's a sweeping eight-count indictment against him. It includes campaign finance violations. Right, it takes time to build white-collar cases. Yeah, Bernie Madoff was arrested shortly after his misdeeds came to light, but the situations are not comparable. Right, Bernie Madoff's scheme was revealed by Bernie Madoff himself. He confessed the whole thing to his sons. He then told the FBI. His sons called the FBI. Two days later, two agents showed up at Bernie Madoff's home, asked there was whether there were innocent explanations for what Madoff had told his sons. Bernie Madoff replied, there is no innocent explanation. Right? On the other hand, Sam Bankman-Fried was not anxious to confess. He has repeatedly rejected the idea that his actions amounted to fraud. So why was the arrest of Sam Bankman-Fried on Monday suspicious timing? Because he was due to appear remotely on Tuesday to a House committee where Republicans planned to grill him. So now, from the Republican perspective, Sam Bankman-Fried was not arrested too late, but too early, says this excellent Washington Post article. So there's no real reason to believe the Justice Department is timing all this to help the Democrats. The U.S. is giving Ukraine Patriot missiles, right? That's the prize of U.S.'s, America's air defense systems, right? They've, they've given them to Israel, now they're giving them to Ukraine. And why is the U.S. giving Israel these missiles? Because Putin has been launching particularly devastating attacks using drones, using Iranian drones on Ukrainian energy infrastructure. So wars tend to escalate. Like, I always stay out of fights, right? And, and a lot of people have mocked me, you know, what's the worst that could happen? You, uh, you get a little bit of pain, but you get to feel like a man. Well, fights tend to escalate. Now, if you get into a fight with an Aussie, it's highly unlikely he'll pull a knife or a gun or that he'll punch you, you know, below the belt or that he'll kick you. You know, Aussies tend to be fair dinkum, you know, fair fighters, but... You don't know who you're messing with, you know, fights can really escalate. And so too with wars. Wars tend to escalate. So Putin escalated by using Iranian drones to try to destroy Ukrainian infrastructure. Now Ukraine and the United States are escalating by giving Ukraine our premier air defense systems, the Patriot missiles. And it also looks like uh, Putin is running out of drones. So what will his next move be? I don't think he's just going to put his tail behind his legs and, and go home. The major reason you want to stay out of wars, if possible, is because they escalate and they escalate and they escalate. And that's the cycle we're in right now with Ukraine. So looking out at the Sydney Opera House from uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge and uh, great news guys, I was just reading in the New York Times that Ukraine can win the war but the price may be too high for the West. Yeah, the price may well be a world-ending, planet-destroying nuclear war with Russia. Right? Do you really think that uh, Russia is just going to give up this fight? So we can usually win many different battles but sometimes the price is way too high so it's always a matter of 
tallying up the price and tallying up the, the benefits. So Ukraine would need tens of billions of more dollars, more powerful weapons, and it looks like, yeah, they could drive Russia out of the territory that Russia's seized in 2022. But you come then with a much escalated chance of war between NATO and Russia explicitly. Right now, the Ukraine and Russia war is just a proxy war with NATO working behind the scenes on behalf of Ukraine. But uh, if it turns from a proxy war into a shooting war, then all bets are off. So, like, how is it in America's interest, Australia's interest, to risk nuclear conflagration in a direct shooting war with, with Russia so that uh, Ukraine can get back all of its territory? Like, is it so important that we send a message to Putin that he cannot win, right, that, uh, that we, we risk, you know, some major escalation? I just don't see the payoff there. Like the United States has already given Ukraine $50 billion. So playing an incredibly dangerous game. So the Biden administration, underneath all its rhetoric, is engaged in a brutal, brutal calculus. They think that this war is worth it because... It will destroy Russia, remove Russia from the ranks of the great powers. But you're taking a significant risk of nuclear escalation. And uh, in the final analysis, how does it benefit England, France, Britain, Australia, United States? Whether or not Russia gets to retain any of the territory that is conquered from Ukraine. Like, if we could have peace and removal of the threat of nuclear war and uh, Ukraine becomes a little smaller, like, why is that an unacceptable price? I'm willing to pay the price for peace. G'day, May 40 here. So, Australian shock as deadly shootout in rural town kills police officers. So, two police officers were killed in a shootout for property in rural Australia. Uh, we had a routine follow-up on a missing person report turned into an ambush, a lengthy siege. And this is highly unusual in Australia. So, why were the police ambushed Right, we don't really know yet, but uh, one of the figures who, in the ambush, right, Gareth Train, was a conspiracy theorist who believed the false claim that the Port Arthur massacre of 1996 in Tasmania, when an Australian gunman killed 35 people, prompted lawmakers to pass stricter gun laws, and he thought this was a false flag operation. So kind of Alex Jones conspiracy level thinking. So, yeah, I, I believe that uh, conspiracy thinking, conspiracy narratives can lead to you know, terrible behavior, but it's never going to be the primary cause of crime because I, I don't think people you know, buy into conspiracy theories or you know, these far-fetched narratives unless they are predisposed to do so. Right? A narrative can't take you anywhere you don't want to go. So when people are failing at life and they're looking for ways to fail, special and superior to others, conspiracy theories can be highly appealing. So I'm not a fan of Alex Jones. I don't have a problem, or a big problem anyway, with social media companies censoring him or banning him from their platforms. You know, what he, he did to all the families of the Sandy Hook killing, how they got harassed by Alex Jones listeners who tried to convince them it was a false flag operation. So I don't like that part of the dissident right or the dissident left, but, uh, but it overwhelmingly comes from the dissident right that immediately claims after a mass shooting that it was a false flag operation. I don't know any mass shooting 
in Australia or in the United States is a false flag operation. And so it's unfortunate that many people get red-pilled and notice that the, the media and elites and teachers and academia have been lying to them about certain things. They then extend that to the media's lying to them about everything. And uh, it's not true. Uh, we never get to graduate from having to understand everything in this particular context and to seek out multiple sources of information to understand things that are said and done critically. But uh, the media is not you know, just constantly lying to you about mass shootings. They're, they're not false flag events. But the, the conspiracy thinking behind this, these are false flag effects, yeah, probably leads to some unfortunate crimes and some self-destructive spirals that people go into. But it does not account to even 1% of, of murders in the country. Right? Compared to the massive amount of damage that the Black Lives Matter movement has done to stimulate a massive increase in murder and crime and traffic and pedestrian deaths in the United States, uh, the, the increase in deaths due to these wacky false flag conspiracy theories are absolutely minute. So, good day, mate. 40 here. Sydney Harbour Bridge looking out of the Sydney Opera House and uh, Twitter has dissolved its Trust and Safety Council and I immediately have more trust and feel safer on Twitter so when Twitter was shadow banning conservatives censoring conservatives, banning conservatives uh, the, the Trust and Safety Committee uh, played a big role in that so all these Orwellian named teams somehow seem always dominated, dominated by the liberal left. I, did you really feel more trust in Twitter and more safety on Twitter because of the Trust and Safety Committee? But somehow these committees, these non-governmental organizations, these elites, they're dominated by the left and they protect the left-wing partisan worldview, which is fine, but they didn't even understand their own worldview is partisan. They just think it's objective truth. But uh, in the final analysis, you know, the, the traditional and, and the modern, the, the right and the left, are very different conceptions of the self. And almost all our political differences come down to these fundamental conceptions of the self. Whether you view the self as porous, meaning I'm affected by what goes on around me, so that as a heterosexual, gay marriage still affects me. Or if you view the self as buffered, meaning you know, what people do next door, the privacy of their own home does not affect me. Right? The buffered self is a modern, liberal, secular perspective. The porous self is the traditional, even medieval perspective on the self. So the, the liberal left perspective on the self is that we are strategic autonomous beings who are basically good. The traditional perspective on the self is that we're not basically good, that uh, we are frequently self-defeating and frequently not so strategic or autonomous, but uh, we're not really so much individuals with inalienable rights, but you know, members of a tribe, a community, an extended family and whatever rights we are afforded will vary depending on circumstances. So I don't see individuals, generally speaking, primarily as individuals. I see them as members of a group, as members of a tribe. That's kind of the, the nationalist worldview. While the liberal left modern secular perspective on the self is that we are individuals born into the world within inalienable rights traditional conception of the self is that we are born into families, extended families, tribes, and nations, and that we are primarily not individuals, but members of an extended family. G'day mate, 40 here, listening to a podcast on Richard Spencer's Substack, redixjournal.substack, The AI Illusion, recorded December 8, 2022. This is Mark Brahman speaking. I understand your point. I mean, it's... Oh. Yeah, I mean, again, I think, it, uh, I think Christianity 
in Judaism. In a very, they are mystery religions, but implicit. Mystery religions has a meaning. It means that you have to be an initiate, initiate to gain access to the mysteries of the religion. So Judaism is like the opposite of a mystery religion. It says the Torah is not far from you. It's very close to you, and yes, you can do it. So mystery religion refers to Hellenic and Greek religions. Uh, and uh, Christianity has taken on some aspects of mystery religion, right? You get taken into the mystery of salvation when you believe in Jesus. Uh, Judaism's not a mystery religion, right? They're positing a kind of breeding ideal. So in other words, Yahweh is effectively, you know, when you read the Hebrew Bible, uh, Yahweh is a very, you know, he's, he's certainly not Aryan. He's, he's a very kind of Jewish character. He has a very kind of Jewish personality and character. Um, and so... That has a kind of uh, race or, or ethnic-forming um, consequence, right? Yeah, but uh, more than more than the Jewish conception of God, you know, formed the Jews. Right, the Jews formed their, their religion from the the culture and the talents of the Jewish people. Right, it wasn't wasn't a particular conception of God that uh, formed the Jewish people. When you worship a God, when you worship a God like Yahweh, you sort of conform a race to that type. Uh, so in other words... It... No, you don't form a race to that type. Right? That type resonates with certain conceptions of the world. Right? Judaism is not primarily a faith. It's primarily a tribal identity. This might also be getting... Uh, uh, be sort of what Richard's getting at is that you know, it's not, it's, what we're talking about also is that the religion produces the type as opposed to the race, uh, as, as opposed to the religion being a kind of, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, Excretion a, of the race. Like, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I would say the, the opposite is much more true. Like a particular people will develop, you know, a particular understanding of reality. So let's, let's posit the religious faith statement that God came down and gave the Torah to the Jews. But what the Jews then do with the Torah and how they implement it, how they study it, how they practice it, right? how they make it real and concrete in their lives can have a whole lot to do with the proclivities and talents and gifts of this particular people rather than theological conceptions that are shaping this uh, particular race. Uh, yeah, the, the idea that uh, the, the old like sort of DR trope that like culture comes from race, right? We're we're saying we're actually saying the uh, the reverse. That, uh, relig- yeah, I would say the old DR trope then is much more accurate. Culture forms race. Yes. Now it may it, it may uh, you, there you could argue that there's a kind of chicken and egg relationship there, right? Because part of what we're trying to form, um, we're trying to uh, recapture on some in some on some level, we're trying to reca- recapture. Uh, an ancestor or founder type, but we're but we're trying to even improve on that, right? Because we want a type that is uh, that is able to sustain civilization, sustain itself, and even improve itself, right? Um, you know, yes. Not something that uh, JF would like, I don't think, because it seems like he's, he's anti. Uh, JF got Yeah, he does seem to be in very some curious way. Um. But we're going to have to compete with the AI. We're going to have to coexist and compete with the AI. I need to actually read his book. Yeah. The Revolutionary Phenotype. I'm a huge skeptic of the power of AI. I I think this is... I don't think we should underestimate it, but I don't think that we should, uh, um, you know, start preparing uh, for the end of mankind or anything. You know? Right. I have have an interesting thought I've been throwing around in my own head. I'll put it to you, gents, is um, about the AI... Just the fact that, I mean, when these sort of, um, I don't know what to call them, conspiracy theories, like doomsday prophecies, dystopian visions of, quote-unquote, artificial intelligence, it's a very, that concept itself is a very liberal, um, like, it, it is a product of liberalism in that it reduces, because liberalism in its scientific materialism cannot understand consciousness, and I say this as a materialist, it, it's a, it is something that I do think about, it reduces consciousness, it describes agency, as sort of being able to come from a mechanistic causal system. And all of that is to say, if human beings are programming the Terminator, 
by it cannot go beyond unless there is some type of moment of transcendence then it in itself cannot have agency like it can have error which might like a nuclear bomb might yeah, it sounds like a traditional theist argument. How can something without consciousness create consciousness? You know, instead of bombing under the hearts of Russia, it might end up on a kindergarten document. But that in itself is not agency of the um, system that human beings have birthed. So I think that at the heart of it is a misnomer and a very sort of scientism, quote-unquote, as much as I hate that word, understanding of consciousness and, and agency. Well, let me... Let me put it to you this way, because this is a this is a new topic, and, and it's big, and, it, and it's something that is... I, I agree with quite a bit of what you're saying, if not all of it, and um, let, let me try to kind of reformulate it in some way. So, we have actually used language for a shorter amount of time than we would imagine. And, you know, dogs can understand words. I'm not sure a dog quite has a grammar... So, you know, wise man, let's say. And we, we kind of have this notion about ourselves that we are the, the rational animal or something like that. That is actually extremely incorrect. Uh, fish, uh, I actually just saw something about this today. There was an experiment in Germany in which fish um, have a sense of numbers. They have a sense of a larger and a smaller number. And they can actually engage in a sort of addition to some extent. So, and they don't have a frontal brain anywhere close to the extent that we have one so like you know there's so much we, we we might even overestimate like the head as the seat of reason or something we have reason in our spinal cord um and i've, I've used this metaphor uh, uh, quite a bit and so I, I i apologize if people are getting bored of it but like there is no t- literally no time to think if you are standing at a baseball plate and someone is throwing 70 80 90 100 miles per hour you cannot think in that split second when you determine what pitch. Is it a curve? Is it a fastball? Is it a changeup? Is it inside? Yeah, I think this is really good analysis from Richard. Inside? Is it outside? Is this, the, is this the pitch I want to hit? You have absolutely no time to think that. And yet you do. The idea that some of these baseball players could explain to you like how a curveball curves, they can't. But they just do it, and they know it in their bones. Maybe kind of literally in their bones. A outfielder, it, it, he hears a crack off the bat. The, the, the audible level of the crack gives him information. He sees it. He sees the ball, maybe even in kind of peripherally to some degree. And he sees it travel like 50 feet. And he estimates exactly where he should run to. And he hops to the exact spot, opens up his glove, and in a lackadaisical manner catches it. There is reason, mathematics, rationality in our spinal cord. And we kind of don't grasp this. And your thinking consciousness, when you're using language, it is... Right, so what's going on with your body is going to have a profound effect with your cognition, your, your mood, your hormone levels, you know, how much at ease you are in your body, if you're in pain, if your muscles are tight, if you're at ease, if you're free... Right. What's going on with your you know, muscle tension level is going to profoundly affect your thinking. Right. You're not going to be free in your thinking and your emotions if your body is tight and compressed. Right. You're not going to feel anxious if your body is free. You're not going to feel depressed if you've got upward direction flowing through your body. Right. When you feel depressed, your body is going to sag and be depressed, concave, collapsing in and down on itself. So, some pretty good analysis here from Richard. It's kind of almost like a late stage of this. And there also have been experiments, I think I've mentioned these to other people, of, and I'll mention two. Um, one of which is that your muscles will engage before you think to pick up your coffee. Now, what I, now does that mean that we're all predetermined or no it does not mean that at all 
what it means of what it means is that you are telling yourself in your mind using language i want coffee as a kind of post facto rationalization of what you are instinctively doing uh another thing so there's a yeah your body and your reflexes and your instincts they often kick in way before your cognition uh, your body instincts reactions you know, want something desire something move towards something and then you use your reason to justify what you want there's an experiment that's done where they tell people to pick up their blinded and they tell people to pick up objects and they say we want you to judge the texture of these objects and so you'll you'll pick one up that will be like furry and you'll pick up another one that will be slick and then they'll say which object was heavier and people will get it what that indicates that might sound like dumb or obvious no it's not dumb or obvious what that means is that not only are they engaged they can engage in reason they're engaging in judgment unconsciously do you understand what i just said or do i need to repeat that yeah we have certain basic instincts we have evolutionarily evolved reactions to life that uh predisposes to certain psychological reactions certain verbal reactions certain political reactions right and these are evolutionarily adapted the reason we have these instincts and reactions is that they have served our ancestors for hundreds of thousands of years and so some people are predisposed towards you know a left wing perspective on life others towards a right wing There's some people predisposed towards you know traditional conceptions you know others are more open to you know innovative ways of organizing families communities civilizations right the the left wing approach is to be more open to new ways of organizing people and families the the right wing approach is to stick with you know time tested traditional ways of organizing people